ahead and turn with me to Acts 19, 1 through 7. Uh, again, a relatively short passage, but chocked full of goodness, and uh, we're going to look at that today. So, uh, those of y'all that weren't with us last week, last week we looked at what was happening while Paul was away from Ephesus. So, Paul comes into Ephesus briefly, he leaves very quickly, but all this stuff is happening. God's still at work even when Paul is not there. That was the point of last week. And so this week, Paul is going to actually make his way back to Ephesus for the beginning of his third missionary journey in the book of Acts. And that's going to begin a multi-year ministry in this strategic city. He's going to be there about three years total in Ephesus to start off that third missionary uh, journey. And Ephesus, Ephesus, okay, I'll just have to say that a couple times. Ephesus was a strategic city in the Greco-Roman world. It was kind of the meeting grounds of, of, of east and west. It was on the Mediterranean. It was a port city, at least until the port filled up with silt. But it was, a, it was a trade center. It was a center of commerce. But again, it was the meeting place of the east and the west, kind of centralized there in the Mediterranean Sea. And so because of that meeting place of different cultures, there were it was really uh, uh, embraced a pluralism of all sorts of different religious beliefs and religious practices and spiritual beliefs and different spiritualities. In fact, Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple of Artemis, the goddess Artemis. It was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. And again, it was one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was known uh, for its paganism as the home of the largest pagan temple in the world at the time. And so the Ephesians were all very spiritual in some sense. There was a lot of religion. There was a lot of spirituality there. And, uh, and when I think of Austin, and I've had these conversations with you guys before, Austin's not an unspiritual city. You guys know this, right? I mean, rarely do you talk to a, a, a philosophical atheist who's just a hardened atheist that doesn't believe in anything supernatural, no soul, no life after death, no God, no nothing, no angels, nothing, right? Usually we talk to people that have some type of spiritual beliefs. They're spiritual in some sense. And because we live in an increasingly international city with all the different draws of business and education and everything else, we see lots of different religions and different spiritual beliefs in Austin. But like Paul, we, we have to realize, folks, that it's not enough to simply be spiritual in some sense. That's, that's not enough for, for, for the creatures, for human beings, to just be spiritual in some sense. Our human tendency, and it is a very human tendency, and we all wrestle with it, is to sort of give people a pass as long as they're inclined as long as they're not hardened atheists, as long as they're inclined to some sort of belief about God or gods or some sort of spirituality, we tend to want to say they're okay, they believe in something, that's great. Especially if they put that into practice in some sense, if they're worshiping God in some sense. But, but Jesus did not say, I am one of many ways to God. That is not what he taught. He taught, which this is a bad word in our culture, he taught exclusivism. He taught that he was exclusively the way to a reconciled relationship with God. He shut out every other option and said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. That's one of the reasons our church is called Wayside, because as we were planting this church, we knew where we were planting this church. I grew up in Austin. I know that Austin's a very spiritual place. There's a lot of 
people that talk about spiritual things and people that practice different religions. But that's not enough. We have to, to, to bring people to the truth about Jesus Christ as the way. So we aren't looking for people who are religious, but rather we're looking for people who are repentant and who are ready to accept a Savior. Guys, repentance and faith go hand in hand. I, I entitled this sermon, Repentance and Faith. Because if we don't have a sense of our need to repent, to turn away from our unbelief and our desire for personal autonomy to be the gods of our own world, then we're not going to turn towards God in faith, at least not saving faith. We may have some sort of concept of God or a God or something like that, but it's not what Jesus was talking about. So today's big idea is that salvation comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I I can't be any clearer about Christianity, about what Jesus taught, about what the Bible teaches, than to say that, that salvation comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying those are two different things. I'm saying those are, those are two sides of the same coin, turning away from our sin, turning away from our unbelief, turning away from that uh, desire to be our own gods, what Eve was after in the garden, and turning towards God and towards his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior in faith. So we should be sharing our faith with repentant people. We're not looking around for people to check off. They're religious. Okay, great. That's great. They're good. We're looking for people who have repentant hearts to share the faith with. So today we're going to look at two basic Christian beliefs that help us understand what it means to become a Christian. These are so basic, but they're so good to be reminded, for us to be reminded about. So two basic Christian beliefs about what it means to become a Christian. Because I'll admit, I, I put ideas into my faith that that aren't native to scripture so we all do this we all have a tendency to kind of go well this is what it means to become a christian or this is what it means to 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 embrace christ or something like this okay so first we're going to look at the christian belief our belief that repentant sinners need the savior that's not enough just to simply feel bad about our sin okay that repentant sinners need the Savior. And then the second basic uh, belief we're going to look at is that all redeemed saints have the Spirit of God. That that is a necessity of being a Christian, is that you have the Spirit of God that was promised in the Hebrew Scriptures and that we see the fulfillment of in the book of Acts, in the New Testament. So those two basic beliefs. So first we believe that repentant sinners need the Savior. And, And I know talk about sin makes us uncomfortable and and, and this idea that we're accountable to our holy God. But guys, if I sidestep that and and I just say, you know what? God can just sweep that under the rug. No big deal. Then I've completely gutted Christianity. I've completely gutted the gospel. I've completely gutted the personal work of Jesus Christ. Because if he didn't need to go to the cross and die for our sins, then he wouldn't have gone to the cross and died for our sins. He was the only way, he was the only sacrifice that could be made, the only perfect, the only lamb who would give his life to take away our sins, the perfect spotless lamb. And so I want to make that clear from the get-go. I'm going to talk about sinners, and I'm going to talk about repentance, but in a hopeful way. Like, I'm excited that we can repent and turn to God. This is amazing. And that's the Christian message of hope. So let's look at that. We believe that repentant sinners need the Savior. So in the first part of our passage, we see some people who have been prepared for the gospel. God has prepared their hearts to to hear the gospel and respond to it in faith. And then we see Paul proclaim the gospel to them. So in verses 1 to 3, we see a preparation for the Christian faith. How? How do we see them prepared? Listen to these uh, first three verses. 
Luke writes this. Now it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, On the contrary, we have not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So now, there's all this debate. Like, we don't know exactly who these men were or how they had become disciples of John the Baptist or what exactly they knew and believed about Jesus. That's up for some level of debate. So at best, they were nominal Christians that just needed kind of uh, more information, kind of like we talked about with Apollos last week. Or at worst, they were just simply disciples of John the Baptist who were looking forward to that one John the Baptist was pointing to who he's preparing the way for, going back to Isaiah and Malachi and the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, But they didn't know that Jesus had come and died and rose again and that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. But either way, they needed some more information, okay? So uh, they were prepared to believe in the good news because they had already embraced the message of John. So for one thing, these men recognized their need for salvation. How do we know that? Well, that was John the Baptist's basic message. That's how the Old Testament, that's how the Hebrew Scriptures ended with Malachi. And we also see it again in Isaiah that there would be one who would be a forerunner for the Messiah, the anointed one of God, that God was sending his Messiah, who somehow was both a man and somehow divine, and you get into Daniel, and there's just, it's kind of confusing from that side of it back in the, in the, the uh, days of the Hebrew prophets. But the idea is that there would be a forerunner coming before him to prepare the way. Well, what does he do to prepare the way? Well, first he goes to Israel, and then ultimately the rest of the nations, and the preparation is to prepare people's hearts through repentance. It's to say, yes, we've been worshiping idols. Yes, we've turned away from the one true God, and we repent of that. And that's the idea of humbling, bringing the mountains low and bringing up the valleys, flattening it all out. Uh, It's through the humility required for repentance to prepare their hearts to receive the, the, the Messiah, the Savior. And so um, that's his basic message. That's what John was doing, right? And so John also taught that salvation would come from our gracious God. Here's what John the Baptist didn't say. Hey, guys, feel really bad about your sin and then work really hard to save yourself. He did not say this, okay? Uh, What he said is, recognize that your sin is separating you from your holy creator and recognize that your salvation has to come from him. It has to be in accordance with his grace. It has to be a salvation from God. It's not us building the Tower of Babel up to heaven so that we can make ourselves worthy of being with God or become gods. It's God condescending in a good sense, but coming down to us in our lostness, in our sin, in our unholiness, and making us holy and providing a way of salvation. And so this is John's basic message, that we have to depend on God and his salvation, and that that salvation would come through his anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ, is the Greek word for that. And that that one would take away our sins. Remember, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So again, God is going to send his own lamb to die to take away the sins of the world. And, uh, And then what else did John say? He, one will come whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. 
Like, I'm not even worthy to do the most basic slave thing in the culture of that ancient society and untie the nasty sandal straps of this one. He's so holy. He's to be so revered that I'm not even worthy to untie his, his sandal. And what does he say? He's going to come and what? I baptize with you, you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so there's an anticipation of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, of the coming of the Messiah in John's message. And that was all part of the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31, when he talks about this new covenant, the old covenant under Moses and the law, the new covenant that God would usher in, this new reconciled relationship with God, between God and his people. And so based on John's teaching, these disciples would have been well prepared to accept Christ. So in verse 4, we see the proclamation of the faith. In other words, Paul presents the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news that these men were waiting for. They had the anticipation. They had seen the Hebrew scriptures. They knew that God was going to have to send a salvation through his anointed one. They knew God was going to have to send his Holy Spirit. And so they're ready to hear this good news. And folks, verse 4 is the critical verse in this passage. The whole thing builds to it. It's the center point. It's the critical passage. And this is what it says. Paul responds to them when they say, well, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. Hebrew name Joshua, reference to God's salvation. Okay. And so here we see that repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. Please don't see this as repentance is some work that we're putting in front of salvation by, by God's grace through faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And that's how Acts in the New Testament and the Old Testament treat repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. So John's baptism, can I just share something real quick? I don't mean that you laundry list out every bad thing you've ever done. That's not what I mean by repentance. I mean the turning away from your unbelief and your tendency to want to make yourself God. You're the authority of your life and everything, truth and morality and everything, and turn away from that towards God in faith. That's what I mean by repentance, okay? I want to clarify that. Uh, So John's baptism was a preparation because it gave people a public means. Remember, he was in the Jordan River. And he was calling people out of Jerusalem and the neighboring towns and villages to come and publicly identify with this baptism of repentance. It's a public way of acknowledging the fact that we're sinners who are separated from God and in desperate need of God's salvation. And people streamed out of the cities to to make this public act of repentance. But John went on to urge people to accept God's salvation by accepting Jesus, who again, his Hebrew name is Joshua. Joshua was the one that took over after Moses and the law to lead the people into the kingdom. He was the one whose name referred to Yahweh's salvation. Jesus is the Greek name of Joshua, or the Hebrew name for Jesus is Joshua, referring to God's salvation. He's the Savior. He's the new Joshua in that sense, the greater Joshua. And so Paul makes it clear that John was simply calling people to repent by turning from their sin and their unbelief and turning to God's salvation. How? by believing in the Savior God was providing. So even though the men in our passage had repented, they knew they were sinners, they knew they were separated from God, they're looking toward God's salvation, Paul knew that they still needed to believe in Jesus to be saved. 
that preparation wasn't enough. They needed the proclamation of the gospel. And as Christians, we believe that repentant sinners need the Savior. And that's where we all were. We were all sinners. And yet Christ died for us all the same. And we all had to turn from that unbelief and turn not just towards some generic faith in God, but towards faith in Jesus Christ that he died for our sins and rose again so that we could be forgiven and have new life in Christ. And uh, I mentioned uh, earlier, but Austin is full of people who are in some sense spiritual. I know you've seen this as well. And I've talked to a lot of people that know a lot about the Bible. Maybe they grew up in the church like I did, but never really took hold of the faith. Um, I didn't until I was in my 20s. Or even they believed something about Jesus, that he was a great teacher or a historical figure or a really special prophet or... um, or even a savior in some sense. I mean, go look at Mormon and Jehovah's Witness doctrine. They use savior language and stuff like this. But guys, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about Jesus. But becoming a Christian isn't just about believing something about God or Jesus. Because again, that puts us in the driver's seat. It makes us the authority. We get to determine. We get to be the autonomous ones who determine what's necessary for salvation. So as long as they have a vague idea about a God or a creator or something like this, or Jesus was a special guy or something like this, that's not it. That's not the gospel. That's not salvation. Becoming a Christian means becoming saved, which means we we have to repent of our unbelief, and we have to turn specifically to Jesus, believing that he died for our sins, rose again, and provided us with forgiveness, uh, uh, separated us from our sin as far as east is from the west, we read in the Hebrew Scriptures, Um, but that he did that for us. And uh, just the other day, I had this really wonderful interaction with a guy who I really hope to become good friends with. Um, He's just just an interesting guy. And uh, we had this really good interaction, and he knows quite a bit about the Bible, and he even referred to Jesus several different ways as some sort of Savior for us, our Savior. But he doesn't seem to have a saving relationship with Jesus, and I don't say that to denigrate him at all. Um, and that's why we're having these great conversations as I'm trying to, I told him, I was like, my passion as a, as a pastor and as a Christian man is to make sure people understand what Jesus actually taught about himself, the claims he actually made so that if you choose to reject him, you're rejecting the actual Jesus, not some version of Jesus that someone came up with. Like, that's what I want to help people do is know exactly what he claimed, who he claimed to be, what he claimed to accomplish, so that they can make a decision based on not some straw man Jesus, but on who he actually claimed to be. So we're in these great conversations. And uh, as I was thinking about our conversation, I realized that, that, that one of the things that was missing from his beliefs, or at least the ones he shared with me, was um, what the Bible says about the sin which separates us from our holy God. Remember, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden and to leave the presence of God because of sin. So that really doesn't come. There's not a category for that so far in our conversations from his perspective. And this is probably why he thinks of faith in Jesus Christ as basically one option among many for human beings to be in some sense saved. To allow for our souls to go somewhere after we die. Because again, Jesus isn't necessary. So he's like a savior and a means of salvation in some sense, but not exclusive in any sense. 
And honestly, I've enjoyed our interaction. I look forward to many more conversations. But more than anything, I want this man, and this goes for every single person in this room, outside this room, in Greater Austin, all my neighbors, all my family, all my friends, all the strangers I'm going to meet at a bus stop someday. I want them more than anything to repent of unbelief, of that human tendency to say, I'm going to be my own God, just like Eve was tempted to do by eating the fruit. And I'm going to be the one to determine what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. That's me. I'm going to be my own God. And I want everybody I know to repent of that tendency that we've all stepped into at some point or another and confess it and turn away from it and turn towards Jesus as our personal Savior, who, again, died for our sins on the cross, rose again to new life so that we could put that old life to death, leave it buried, crucified and buried, and and be raised to new life through new birth in Christ. And only when my new friend believes that good news about Jesus will he become a Christian. It won't be because he finds a church and starts going to it. It won't be for any other reason than believing that and knowing the forgiveness of God and the hope that is in Christ. Every repentant sinner needs the one and only Savior. Um, So here's the application for us, guys. Who has God prepared and placed along your path? Who, whose heart has God been working in and then put in your life at work or they moved in next door to you or whatever as a friend at school? Just think about it. Pray about it and just ask God, like, like who? That, that's what we are. We're witnesses. We're salt and light. Like, who else are they going to hear about Jesus from if not us, right? So who has he put in your life? And this isn't like a guilt and shame thing, like, oh, I don't talk about my faith enough. This is like an exciting thing. Like God's going to give you boldness to be a witness for Christ. But let's start by prayerfully just asking him, who did you put in my life? Whose heart are you working in to prepare to receive this good news? Who recognizes that sin is separating them from a holy creator? Guys, if you start to talk to anybody that doesn't have the hope of Christ, they they can't do anything with their sin. They can't forgive themselves. We talked about this yesterday at the workshop. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't get rid of our own shame and guilt. Somebody else can't take that off of us, you know. Only Jesus can cleanse us. Only Jesus can make us right. Only Jesus can make us holy. And so people are going to have that that hole in their soul when you start talking to them. And it's going to come out a lot of different ways. I just feel so purposeless or meaningless or there doesn't seem to be ultimate meaning to life or, you know, whatever, right? Just sit through some secular atheism stuff and you'll just be so depressed, right? There's just really no meaning at all, no purpose to life, right? Except what you can just kind of contrive in the moment, right? And so let's prayerfully ask, who's God put in our life? And if you have anyone like that in your life, please don't leave them looking for a savior. Please don't leave them looking for some way to fill that hole in their soul because they'll try and cram something in there, whether it's addictions or work or relationship or some spirituality that that doesn't save them don't leave them looking for a savior introduce them to jesus christ pray for the boldness to introduce them to the one who died for their sins and rose again so that they might be reconciled to god through faith their personal savior and again it's not enough to simply be religious or to even repent and feel bad about the bad things we've done Being a Christian means believing in Christ for salvation. So first of all, we believe that every repentant sinner needs the Savior. And second, we believe that every redeemed saint has the Spirit. 
This is so crucial to our Christian faith. In verses 5 to 7, we see this teased out in two different types of baptisms. Uh, And we're going to talk about both types. But water baptism, we see that explicitly called baptism. But then we see something that's referred to uh, in theology and scripture as the spirit baptism. So let's look at those two baptisms and how that works out in terms of our redemption as Christians. Water baptism. Listen to this. This is going to shock some people. But water baptism is the evidence of saving faith. And you're like, what? I thought that was just optional. Right? I'm not saying that being dipped in water saves you in the sense of like, that's what saves you as opposed to faith in Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is all throughout scripture, all throughout the last 2000 years of Christian history, the evidence that you're a Christian, that you've given your life to Christ, trusted in Christ, however you want to put it, has always been water baptism. It's always been a public profession of faith through water baptism. It's super important. You did not hear me say it's necessary for salvation, but you did hear me say it's super important, and anybody that trusts in Jesus should, be, should make that public profession of faith. So look at verse 5. It says, When these disciples of John the Baptist, who had already been baptized in John's baptism of repentance, when they heard the gospel, they were baptized what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized as Christians. And so over and over again in the New Testament, we see that trusting in Christ goes hand in hand with being baptized in his name or in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that became uh, routine in the early church. Sometimes they'd even dip you three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, trine baptism, I think it's called. But anyway, the point is you're being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, i.e. you've believed that he is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he's done and that you're the beneficiary of that. And so you get baptized in his name, associated with him publicly. And throughout all of church history, the public sign of saving faith has always been water baptism. Baptism is the initial step of obedience in the Christian life. That's the Great Commission. It starts with that, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. It's not... um, It's not anything else. It's always been the physical, visible act which sets us apart as distinctly Christian. And that's why you can talk about believing in Jesus all day long in in countries that persecute the church. And most times they don't do anything until you get baptized in his name. And then, uh, is it a fatwa? Anybody know that word? Is that what it's called? The hit? Yeah, your family takes out a hit on you. And and that's when you get persecuted, is when you get baptized, when you go in the water in the name of Jesus Christ and come out. So you can talk all day long about what you believe about Jesus, but that's when it gets real in those countries. And people, to the detriment of themselves and and to the risk of their lives, do that to identify themselves with Jesus. And so the scriptural symbolism of water baptism is so rich and beautiful, we can't even, like, touch it today But simply put, it reveals our repentance from that old life, our turning from that old life, putting away, letting it be crucified and buried with Christ, and our turning to God for salvation, for that new life in Christ. Uh, It also symbolizes the Lord's redemption. That word redemption is a payment made to redeem you out of slavery. Uh, It's it's that this payment has been made to, to bring you out of slavery to sin and death. And that's what Christ accomplished for us. And that's what we see in baptism. So we die to our old sinful life. We're born again to a new life in Christ. It's also the picture of the spiritual reality of what has happened to us as a result of trusting in Christ. In other words, and this is Paul's language, 
that we have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's also what John the Baptist said. We're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that baptism is the word, it, it gives the imagery of being dipped. It's like taking cloth that you're going to dye a certain color and immersing it, submerging it in that, the dye so that it gets completely dyed. Okay? So it's dipping, it's immersing. All right? So we are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then we're also going to be baptized, Paul writes later, into the body of Christ. That we're baptized into one body. We're going to look at some of this in Ephesians this semester. And so that, that's all pictured in water baptism. Now let's look at spirit baptism, which is what water baptism is representing. Spirit baptism is, is evidenced by spiritual fruit. Yes, it's also uh, pictured in our water baptism, but how do we know we have the Holy Spirit in our life? That's what you've got to wrestle with. Because, guys, if you don't know you have the Holy Spirit, I, I didn't even have room to put all the New Testament verses that talk about the fact that if you have the Holy Spirit, you're saved. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's everywhere in Scripture. But when you doubt your faith, you go, am I even a Christian? I can't believe I did that. Do I even, am, am I even saved? Right? Does God even, like, love me? Am I even one of his? Like, you know, we do this to ourselves sometimes, right? Especially when we make mistakes and fall into sin and things. What is it that shows us that we belong to him? What is it that shows us that we've been adopted as sons and daughters into God's very family and made holy in Christ? Guys, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The evidence that we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit then is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in and through our lives. He brings the life of Christ. It's like the vine and the branch in John 15. When we're connected with Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into us because we've been made holy, and now a Holy Spirit can dwell in our holy selves, this new life we have in Christ, and he produces the fruit of Christ in our life, the fruit of the life of Christ. And that's how we can see. Look at verses 6 and 7. When we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we are going to be characterized by supernatural power and abilities. Does that sound weird to you? Does that sound like the Marvel, the MCU? You know? But that's exactly what we should expect. Look at verses 6 and 7, the last two verses. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's not always evidenced by the supernatural ability to prophesy and to speak in previously unknown languages like we see in the book of Acts. In fact, this is the third and final mention of tongues in the book of Acts. We saw it with uh, Pentecost in Acts 2. We saw it with, uh, explicitly with Cornelius in Acts 10. And now we're seeing it for the third and final time. So to be clear, and I want to be clear about this, because we all come from different backgrounds and denominational backgrounds and things. But this is coming right out of our wayside doctrinal statement. It's that the gift of tongues is not and has never been the normal evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to hear the wrong thing there. Speaking in tongues is not now and has never been throughout church history the normal, routine way of evidencing the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I absolutely believe these people and other people have spoken in tongues, right? 
but it's, it's never been the normal evidence. And we also need to address another issue in verse 6. When does a person experience spirit baptism? Is it some second work that happens after trusting in Jesus Christ? I mean, look at our passage. Did, when they believed, did the Holy Spirit come? Was the Holy Spirit poured out on them? You could shake your heads, yes or no. No, not when they believed. When what? When Paul laid his hands on them and prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit, and they received the Holy Spirit. So what is that? Well, listen to this. In the book of Acts, we see variation happening in the early church. This is so crucial to how we understand the book of Acts. There are things happening in the early church context, in the apostolic era, with the apostles there on the earth, teaching and preaching the message of Jesus Christ with the authority of Christ before they hand it over to others, other church leaders, as the church spreads out throughout the ends of the earth. So it is a, it is a, uh, it is a special time in the history of the church. Now that doesn't mean I, I don't assume all the things you think I believe when I say that. But just know that this is a special time and there is variation in when the Holy Spirit comes. Just think about this. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out on the apostles at Pentecost, long after they had trusted in Christ. Right? Because that was the birth of the church. So they had already been believers for a while and they were sitting praying in an upper room and much later... The Holy Spirit comes down upon them, right? That's Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans. They experienced spirit baptism not when they believe Philip's message, but when. When the apostles, Peter and John, come from Jerusalem, from the mother church, and lay their hands on those uh, half-Jewish Samaritans north of Judea in Samaria. And they show that connection to Christ and his apostles. And then in Acts chapter 10, you remember this one? Uh, Peter goes with these other Jewish guys to the home of Cornelius, the Gentile centurion. And Cornelius and all his family is like, God said you're going to tell us something about salvation. And I mean, if you'd ever seen like somebody teed up to hear the gospel and Peter starts sharing the gospel, he's not even done yet. And the Holy Spirit like falls upon them and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying and exalting God. So there's variation in the book of Acts in terms of when this happens. And in today's passage, the disciples in Ephesus received the Spirit only after Paul laid hands on them. So folks, in the book of Acts, you need to hear this, there's no set pattern for the timing of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. But when the Spirit is given by God in response to one of the apostles laying their hands on someone, whether it's Peter and John or whether it's Paul laying their hands on someone, it's meant to connect the pouring out of the Spirit to the ministry and teaching and authority of Jesus Christ and his apostles. It's building connective tissue within the body of Christ back to the head, Jesus Christ, and his apostles. And, and, and that's important to recognize that. Otherwise, every other reference to spirit baptism in the New Testament seems to be related to the point of conversion when a person initially places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So then, water baptism normally happens after spirit baptism. Normally, we come to faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, and then we go get baptized in water as a public sign of our commitment to Christ. So to sum it all up, Paul's assumption in today's passage is that to know the Savior is to have the Spirit, and to have the Spirit is to know the Savior. No exceptions. And personally, I've never spoken in tongues or prophesied. Did you know that about me? 
Did you know I have never spoken in previously unknown languages or even a prayer language or even glossolalia or anything? I've never prophesied. I'm not saying that facetiously. It just never happened. It certainly didn't happen when I came to faith at a pub when I was 23 eating a cheeseburger with a guy who was praying over our food. I did not just immediately start speaking in tongues and prophesying. But I will tell you this. I have seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I guarantee you have too if you've trusted in Jesus. I've seen the evidence and I hope other people have seen the evidence of him in my life as well. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life, folks, has been the existence of spiritual fruit that I cannot take credit for. It's the existence of spiritual fruit that I look at shocked and go, how did that come out of me? That must not be me. That must be the Holy Spirit in me. And when my wife and kids and friends and people around me and people in our church look at me and go, that wasn't Ben. That was somebody else. That was the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you a case in point. Just this past week, you guys know our house caught fire back in December. We've been living in a rental house. Uh, we've, and thank you for asking how we're doing. And everything is going well. And we feel super blessed. There's ups and downs. Okay. So it started raining. And it was rain. We didn't have a roof on our house yet. They had put up the framing. But they hadn't put on like the shingles and everything else. And the, and the crickets. Is that what they're called? And the flashing and all this stuff. So it starts raining before any of that gets up, and it's raining into our house. And so the company that's doing the construction brings in these huge industrial dehumidifiers, and they're sucking all the moisture out of the floorboards and the walls and the two-by-fours and everything, the insulation. And then they, it goes into this little tube in the back that you put in your shower, your sink. Have you seen these? And it puts all the water down your drain, okay? So I'm like, this last week, I was overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. I mean, I, I felt like I was going to have... Uh, you know, a conniption fit. And so I'm like, I got to, I got to get out of the house. I got to leave. I left my phone. I left the computer and I walked like for two hours through this neighborhood. And I walked all the way down this new little park on old Spicewood. I was praying and I was just lifting all this stuff up to God. One of the things I was lifting up to God was our house and all the ups and downs with the, the reconstruction and the remediation and everything. And I felt great. And I was coming back up Yopon. I was like, you know what? They just put shingles on our house yesterday. Thank God. It's going to keep all the rain that's been showing up out of our house. And so I'm like, thank you, God. I'm going to go look, and I'm going to go give you glory for this amazing thing. Because literally, we prayed for a break in the rain, and that one day was like they were able to get up all the shingles, all the flashing, all the crickets, everything, right? And so I go, and I'm like looking forward to this just nice dry house. And I open the front door, and I hear streaming water. And I was like, what could that possibly be? And I go to the back downstairs bathroom, and there's water pouring out of the sheetrock in the ceiling. The lamp is completely full of water. It looks like a fishbowl. And, and there's water coming down the walls and the sheetrock and everything else. I run upstairs, and one of the subcontractors who was there working on the HVAC had moved that dehumidifier about a foot and had popped the tubing out of the shower basin. And it was just sucking all the water from the rain out and just distributing it in this spot on our floor upstairs. And it was just pouring through the downstairs ceiling. And I like had this moment and I was like, here's what Ben would have done. Ben would have, veins would have just exploded in my head. And like, I would have just, I wouldn't be here today. I would, I would just, they would have buried me last week sometime. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit, and it's like, I knew God was with me. And you know God's, and we talked about this in the trauma workshop we did the last couple of days, that when you suffer, Part of what keeps you from being traumatized in your suffering is knowing you're not alone. 
And so I was with God on this prayer walk. I knew he was right there with me. And so I knew he's like right there with me in this moment. And I was like, God, help me. And it was so great because I prayed before I called the project manager who's reconstructing her house, who's overseeing all the subcontractors, who, by the way, is a believer and, and has a tough job. And I call him and I had spent days before working on other issues. And he has like 10 other projects he's working on. And I called him. I go, <laughs> I go, hey, man, I know you're just thinking you wanted me to give you a call and tell you something was wrong. And he just kind of laughs, kind of like, ha ha. And I was like, there's water streaming out of the upstairs through the sheetrock and the ceiling. I was like, can you come over? He's like, yeah, I'll be there in 20 minutes. But I was cool, calm, collected. I was at peace about it. And I, I helped him. I was there for like six hours helping him pull the wet sheetrock because they couldn't get their, their MIT team, their mitigation team out there. So he and I are like pulling out wet sheetrock and the walls and everything and like mopping stuff up. Um, even like my mom, when she heard about it, was like peaceful. She goes, well, isn't that a blessing that we had all those dehumidifiers and fans there? And I'm like, this is not my mom and I. This is, this, this is the Holy Spirit working through us, you know? And all my neighbors are coming over because I didn't have my phone. So I had to go to the neighbor's house and go, can I call Stacy on your phone so she can bring my phone so I can call the guy? And she's like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. So it's like all these people were there to, to witness that. And, and I had this miraculous sense of calm about the whole situation. I was able to communicate everything to the project manager. And he felt so blessed because he was having a horrible day already. And, but he was blessed just to, and we talked about his faith and his church and his family while we were working on the sheetrock. It was great. So all this to say that we can see the supernatural evidence of the Holy Spirit, not simply in tongues and prophesying like we see in the book of Acts, but in, in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you hear some of those? And that might as well be speaking in previously unknown languages. That might as well be prophesying. You're like, patience? Yes. Like, as we learn to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and trust in Christ, you'll see patience in your life where there wasn't patience before. And your spouse and your kids and your friends and your people at church are going to go, that's amazing. Praise God for that. Because we don't have the power to do that otherwise. I mean, we can fake it for a while, but man, you get a big enough storm and that house is going to get washed away, okay? So there's two applications quickly for the second part of today's passage. First, have you confirmed your saving faith through water baptism? Guys, I, I, it probably sounds like I harp on this, but listen, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, right, then get baptized. Relying on something else to serve is that public sign of your profession of faith. Re- relying on walking an aisle, saying a prayer, raising your hand, finding a church, going to a Bible study, that's not the public sign of faith either in the new testament or in the history of the church it's water baptism so if you've not been baptized in the name of jesus christ let's do that we're going to do baptisms if there are any on our six-year anniversary on september 25th so talk to me and we'll get you set up with that um second has the lord confirmed your spiritual regeneration through spiritual fruit this is not a, a, a make you feel bad about yourself or myself this is just the honest question. Is like, have you seen the Spirit bear fruit in your life? And if not, or if you're, if you're dissatisfied with the amount of fruit you've seen, well, then let's lean into that. Let's look at your life and see, like, what is uniquely Christian about it? Like, where are you developing that discipline of, of trust and obedience and, and sensitivity to the Spirit? 
That's why we're in church together. That's why he puts us in a body of believers together so we can help each other be more fruitful and allow God to, to cut off the, 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 the branches that aren't producing fruit and, and tend to us so that we can be more fruitful for his glory. And that's a privilege we get in each other's lives. So the more we lay aside our old selves and listen for the Spirit with a heart of obedience, the more we will see the fruit of the Spirit as we mature in faith. So just to recap as I close, I went on some tangents there today. Thanks for bearing with me. Um, It's not enough to be religious. It's not like God's just waiting for us to get religious somehow in some way. It's not even enough for us to be repentant, for us to know that it's wrong for us to want to be our own God, for us to know that we're sinners in, in, in need of a Savior. That's not enough. If we don't ever come to the point of placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we will not experience God's salvation. We will not receive the Holy Spirit. But it's as simple as that. It's, if, if we don't have salvation, if we don't have the Spirit, it's as simple as just saying, I believe. I believe that I'm a sinner separated from my holy creator and that he sent his son to die for my sins. His, my sins went on his shoulders on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sins. He gave me his righteousness. And now I can have eternal life, forgiveness, a reconciled relationship with God through him. That's it. That's it. That's the gospel. It's so simple and straightforward. And I want to leave you with a verse that is so simple and straightforward. And it's one that I hope you'll memorize with me this fall in our discipleship groups. But it's 1 John 5, 11 through 12. And this is what John writes. And the testimony is this, he writes, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And then listen to what John says in verse 12. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Next week, we're going to see how that testimony of life in the Son of God spreads throughout not just Ephesus, but throughout the entire region of Asia Minor as Paul proclaims that gospel. We'll look at that next week.